But let me just pray um, as, as I start. Father, Father God, I pray, I thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that something written such a long time ago can be of real relevance to us today. And I pray that as we look at it, you would speak to our hearts through your Holy Spirit and would guide us and help us to understand what you've got to say to us today. Amen. So we continue our studies in Exodus. Now, before we dig into the passage, um, who here likes a good film? People, most people, I can see, yes, I suspect most people, one of the people haven't put their hands up, so you'll see one of the people just sits there watching something else whilst the family's watching a film, which is what I often do when I'm not interested in the latest Disney Plus thing or whatever. But um, I don't even notice the theme with a lot of films, um, particularly the epic films, where there is a journey that goes on. Um, and often a journey where there are almost impossible odds for the main characters of the film. Now, when I was uh, 11 uh, at school, I remember reading The Hobbit, which is Tolkien's sort of famous uh, book where he describes the journey of simple folk from Middle-earth to go on a quest. And the, the, and the successor to that is The Lord of the Rings. Now, about 20 years ago, they filmed the epic Lord of the Rings. It was over three films, and it was in New Zealand it was filmed. Um, and it tells us the story, and apologies if any of you haven't seen it, um, hopefully there weren't too many spoilers, of these two hobbits, simple country folk, who are given a magic ring and told that they have to destroy that ring. They have to take it to Mordor, which is the, the worst place uh, on the edge of Middle-earth. And when they set off on the journey, it seems an impossible journey. How on earth can those two boys, essentially, fight the forces of evil and succeed? And it's interesting, isn't it, how a lot of films have their roots, have their origins in the stories in the Bible. Uh, now, of course, the stories in the Bible, particularly here, are real stories that actually happened. And um, I guess it leads to the question sometimes of putting yourself in the position of those two hobbits setting off on their journey, knowing that they've almost got the odds completely stacked against them. Do we ever feel like that on our journey as Christians? Do we feel, actually, why on earth has God called me to be his witness here on earth? I mean, why, why would he ask me to do this? Do you ever feel unworthy of a calling? I, I know I do. And then the other thing as well is, and, and this is a clip from rather later in the film where they are about to get to Mount Doom, the really the worst bit which they have to face, is do you feel like that our cause as Christians is hopeless against the forces of our age that would seek to deny God? Because, I mean, even in my lifetime, I've seen it's become harder and harder to become a Christian or to be a Christian in the world today. Often the easiest thing to do is just to accept with what the world around us is telling us in terms of the values and the beliefs and everything else because you have a quiet life. Actually standing up against it is increasingly countercultural. Um, it was probably about seven years ago um, I got invited, and I'm still to this day not entirely sure why I got invited or how I got invited, but I went to the House of Lords in London. Now it wasn't in the main chamber or anything like that, it was a room at the back where they had a dinner. And they had a debate on this subject of, does Christianity need the state to protect it? In other words, 
has, has it got to the point that Christianity actually needs help to preserve it from uh, essentially attack? And what, what, was, what was really interesting in the debate was, is there were some people who said, absolutely, we need to have all the laws there to protect and ensure that Christianity is part of our heritage and should be protected. And then there were those of us, and I have to say I was rather in the latter camp myself, to say, well, look at the time before the state kind of took over Christianity, which sort of happened in about the 4th century. That was the biggest explosion of the church in its history, without the state protecting it. It's almost like God doesn't need the state to protect it. And part of us would say, well, bring it on. Bring it back. Interesting. Because certainly at the time of Moses, it was very much the state was all-powerful. And God's people were very, very much in the minority here. So a quick recap of where we are in the story and the story today. This picture, by the way, if anyone watched, is the, the great film, The Ten Commandments, from 1956 with Charlton Heston playing Moses. It's a great epic um, if you ever want to do it, uh, not completely biblically true in every way, but it's a, it's a really good film and it's in colour from 1956, which is remarkable. Um, but the story so far, Israel is in exile. They have been subjugated by probably the most powerful nation on earth who are exerting their power, who are resenting the presence of Israel. And we're starting to see the call just before today's chapter of God who says, I will deliver my people out of Egypt. And at the very start of today's passage, look at verse 13. God reiterates that call. He says, now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and he commanded them to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. We then have this long genealogy. Now genealogies are really important, uh, particularly they were particularly important to God's people in the Old Testament. Because they showed the origin of where people came from. They gave the credibility to who these people were. And it says in verse 26, it was this Aaron and Moses, i.e. these people have just come from, to, to whom the Lord said. And then it repeats, bring the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. And then the God then turns his focus to talk to Moses directly at the end of chapter 6, going into verse 7. And we see Moses say, Verse 30, I'm unworthy. I can't do this. I can't even speak properly. And then in verse 7, God commands Moses. He says, look, see, I, have, I will make you like a god to Pharaoh. And he gives him very, very precise instructions as to what Moses is to say with Aaron, his brother, to Pharaoh. And he predicts, God predicts what is going to happen. He doesn't make it easy at all for Moses at all. He, in fact, he, he hardens Pharaoh's heart. And then he talks about the judgment that is going to happen. Verse 6, we are given a reminder of just how old Moses and Aaron are. For the first time, actually, when I was studying this, it, it struck me oddly. Aaron was three years older than Moses. He was 83 when this happened. Then God gives specific instructions as to what to do immediately with Pharaoh. Pharaoh, when Pharaoh says to him, said, perform a miracle, verse 9, he says to Aaron, take your staff and throw it before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron are obedient. They go to Pharaoh. They do as God commands. They throw the, the staff down. It becomes a snake. 
and the, and the evil sorcerers there then produce their own staffs, which also become snakes. And Aaron's staff swallows them up whole. And yet, and yet, Pharaoh's heart still remains hard. That's essentially the story from today. So we, so we look at the story and we think, well, okay, what do we learn here? What do we learn about God in this story? And we're going to look at it under three headings today. Firstly, we learn that God is a patient God. God shows incredible patience here. Secondly, he wins the triumph. His grace triumphs over evil. And then thirdly, and perhaps crucially and most interestingly here, he delights in using imperfect but obedient people. So firstly, he is patient. He's patient. You think, well, okay, so how is God patient here? Well, we know that the Israelites have been essentially subject to the Egyptians for 400 years, thereabouts. And just to give you a bit of context, the reason I put this picture in the background is this is the Nile Delta in Egypt. Egypt would essentially be a big desert if it wasn't for the fertile Nile Delta, which is this fairly narrow strip that goes along the Nile. And that was the bit that the Israelites had been farming for the Egyptians. But they'd been there for a huge amount of time. Just with that in context, that's um, going back to the time of James I, if we were to go back 400 years. It's pre-Scottish independence. It's pre-American independence. It's a, and it's a long time ago. Moses himself has been you know, going for 80 years, as we know, since he, was, he arrived in the basket. And God has had the patience here for all of this time and had a plan for his people for all of this time. And in 6.13, we see him commanding them to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. It's a patient plan. You see, God could rain judgment down on the Egyptians immediately. He could say, judgment is coming and it comes, but he gives the Egyptians a chance. See, notice how he uses Aaron and Moses to come before the Egyptians, to come before Pharaoh, and challenge them and say, let my people go. But they don't take the opportunity. Pharaoh refuses to listen to them, even though miraculous things are happening before Pharaoh's eyes. It's also what we describe as a mature plan, in the sense that God here has waited for 80 years to use Moses here in this position. And Aaron's 83. And he's been shaping them. And Moses has spent time out of Egypt it, um, but, but back um, over the other side of the, of the Red Sea. And he's come back. And God has been working with Moses for all of this time to get him to the point where he can confront Pharaoh and he can lead his people. And patience is a characteristic that we see 
shaped throughout the Bible of what God is. You see, there's an interesting bit in 2 Peter, um, in fact, I'm just looking at 2 Peter 3.9, where in answer to the question of where, where actually the people there were being mocked and said, well, why doesn't God come back? Why is God not coming back tomorrow? And it said in, in, in 2 Peter that um, for the Lord, a, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Because the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And that is the desire of God. That's the desire of God here, to give people an opportunity, a chance to come to know who he truly is. And we see that revealed in this story. And ultimately, we see this revealed through Jesus. The fact that you, you look through the New Testament uh, and, and the Gospels, and you see Jesus teaching people, telling people, giving them an opportunity to repent. Next is that um, God's grace triumphs over evil. We, we, we see here um, the commands that God gives to Moses. See, I've made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. And then he gives him then specific instructions as to what to do. He'll multiply his signs and wonders, and he'll lay his hand on Egypt, and, and, and with judgment, the plagues that will come, he will bring out his divisions out of Egypt. And crucially in verse 5, and the Egyptians will know that I am Lord, that I am the Lord. We have here a classic case of the goodness of God pitted against evil. Now, my, my son who's, who's here today um, is, is, is resplendent in, in his Harry Potter top. Um, he very much enjoys the Harry Potter tales. Um, and it's quite interesting how the imagery here within, within actually Harry Potter is actually quite similar here to the imagery that we see of Pharaoh. And when you think, well, what, what is that? What's Harry Potter got to do with the story of the Egyptians? And it's a symbol of the snake. So the, for those who don't know Harry Potter at all, I won't bother to go into great detail to explain about it, but essentially, you've got, um, it's like, a, it's like a, a public school for witches and wizards, and you have four houses within the school, and the bad house, the evil house, is called Slytherin. And the badge of Slytherin is a snake on it. Because snakes have always been seen as essentially synonymous with evil. And it was certainly the case in the time of Pharaoh. So you look at Tutankhamun and what is in the middle of his headdress? It's a snake. And the Egyptians were terrified by snakes. They were really, really scared of them. I mean, they actually had proper snakes that will hurt you, um, as opposed to little snakes that we have in this country. Um, uh, and, and indeed, uh, I remember studying Antony and Cleopatra when I was at school, and of course the snake is a crucial, plays a crucial role in that. The, the aspen is believed to be the Egyptian cobra, uh, which you can see there, which is a pretty fearsome snake. But you see, often, um, where, you, where you have uh, snakes, it is synonymous with evil. And the Egyptians, the, the, 
the, the Pharaoh actually used the snake as a symbol of that authority of evil. And so this encounter between Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh is really crucial in understanding, almost a metaphor of that battle between good and evil. Because they go to Pharaoh. Aaron throws his staff down as he's told by God, and it becomes a snake. Now, again, the translation here from the Hebrew is not wonderful. Because when you think of a snake, you think of a little snake going around. No, this, the translation of this, is the worst, most horrible serpent you can think of. Almost like a sort of leviathan, um, a horrendous thing. And you can just imagine the picture of this thing slithering around um, and it comes down. Now, due to dark magic, we we managed to see Pharaoh and his wise men and sorcerers trying to do the same thing. But God, in this wonderful way, says, I'll just confront evil up front, face to face. And Aaron's snake, his leviathan, swallows the rest of them. And it's a metaphor, it's a picture of God's victory over evil. And yet, you'd have thought that would be enough, surely, to convince Pharaoh here. But it isn't. It isn't enough. His heart still becomes hard. And that's kind of the dispiriting thing sometimes, isn't it? You think, surely the world around us has seen, actually, the tremendous message of Jesus, the tremendous message of hope. Why do they not get it? Why do they not see that this is the best news in the world? I I was um, was lamenting this to somebody um, the the other week, and I was saying, it, it can be so discouraging sometimes, isn't it? Where you think, why do people just not see this truth? And he, remind, he said, well, unfortunately, the reality is that people, as it says in Romans, people's hearts are hard. That's the natural state of people. But he gave me this little verse, which is so apposite to this message today, from John 16.33, which were the last words of Jesus uh, that he utters to his followers in John's Gospel. He says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. He's won the victory. Jesus, by going to the cross, by defeating death, has shown that God has the ultimate victory over sin. It it, it matters nothing else. He has won that victory. And he is the one that we follow. Thirdly then, he delights in using imperfect but obedient people. I do find this a real encouragement to me today when I look at these words and think how God managed to use Moses and Aaron here. Notice at the end of um, chapter 6 in verse 30, after God has said, well, go to Pharaoh and tell him everything I told you. And Moses says to the Lord, but I speak with faltering lips. Why is he going to listen to me? Now, again, the translation is probably too gentle here. Uh, the translation actually literally means, I understand, that um, almost like he spoke within an impure way, almost in a closed way, in a way that he was almost not saying anything at all. And 
he legitimately says, well, you know, I, I don't think I can do this, God. But what does God say to Moses? See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. That's an incredible thing, isn't it? But what he's saying is that essentially you will be my ambassador. You will be there on my behalf, and Aaron's going to be my prophet. God gives Moses that level of authority in the same way that Jesus comes with that authority later on in the Gospels. And the response of Moses and Aaron? Well, they're obedient. They do just as the Lord commands them, in spite of their own lack of confidence in their own abilities, because they know that God has given them the strength to do it. And what's the result? A miracle. Aaron's staff swallows up the staffs. They come head to head with the the greatest power of the day, and they take him at his own game. They they, they show the, the defeat of evil. And yet still, Pharaoh's heart becomes hard because he doesn't listen to God. It's quite interesting, actually, when you talk about hardness of heart. Um, I had a friend who was a doctor who, who where doctors obviously come across people more in their last days. Um, and you think there would be more people probably coming to a realisation in their last days of who God is. And you do hear occasionally wonderful stories. But unfortunately, doctors said actually there are very, very few people indeed where you hear effectively deathbed repentances, people coming to awareness. And the sad fact of life is that as people age, as they stay away from God, that actually hearts become harder, which is partly why you see so many younger people becoming believers, where their hearts are softer and, and, and more malleable. And I just think that's something we should be really aware of, actually, particularly as we tell the gospel to younger people where people's hearts are still soft and malleable and they will listen. That, that, that spoke to me as quite a challenge from this. But God delights in using our weakness so that his glory might be greater. I find these words from uh, Paul in 2 Corinthians really encouraging in this. Paul says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. And and that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What Paul's saying here is that the glory goes to God. If he can speak through us, and we're all a pretty imperfect bunch, and I... (laughs) very much myself included in that when when we speak actually God can still be glorified and God delights in using us in this all that he asks is that we are obedient so let's unpack this a little bit with a few practical things just in conclusion you see we learn from here from this passage and and it's absolutely true 
that God does give people opportunities to hear him. He doesn't bring judgment immediately. He suspends his judgments on people and gives them opportunities to hear him. But the reality is, when we speak the gospel, when we speak truth to people, we should not expect everyone to turn around and say, yes, I agree, and, and, and I want to follow Jesus. Hearts will harden, and it does become harder and harder with people. But let's be encouraged. God has won the victory over evil. And incredibly, he delights in using us for his purposes, despite our weakness. I think finally, we just need to take encouragement in just needing to be faithful in preaching the whole gospel. It's an interesting debate um, that has come up one or two things recently where when we say about being obedient to the gospel what does that actually mean in terms of speaking the gospel because there, are, there is one side of the church that will say well we, we, we need to preach judgment on people we need to say um, repent now and, 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 that, and, and, and that, that's, that's really important and then there's another side of the church that said well we, we can't scare people with talk of judgment, can we? We must preach love. We must just tell people that God loves them all the time and never mention judgment. The point is, actually, both of these approaches don't give credit to the full gospel, do they? Because the truth is, if you just preach love and you do so in a vacuum, you just say God is love, well, yeah, but what? What is the point of God's love? If you don't understand judgment, you can only truly understand God's love if you understand that everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. That nobody deserves God's grace at all. So we must preach God's love. We must show people God's love as we, as we behave in, in our everyday lives. But we mustn't forget that there's a reason as to why. In fact, the greater glory goes to God because of, of how he has rescued us from this judgment through his grace and, and, and we, we, we must be faithful in preaching the whole gospel to people so the truth is we started off with an impossible journey and it looked like that but as it's shown and without any spoilers for future weeks Moses and Aaron are on a hard journey but it's on a victorious journey. Because God will lead his people out of the pro into the promised land. And Egypt will know who God is. That is what is going to happen at the end of this story. We know that God has won the victory. So when you're feeling down, when you're feeling discouraged, when you're feeling that society is against what you're trying to say, take heart, take encouragement. Because we are following the one who made the universe, who has won the victory, and who equips us weak and faltering people to deliver his truths. Let's pray. Father God, we want to give you thanks for your word. We thank, give you thanks for the encouragement that in spite of the weakness of Moses and Aaron, that you worked through them. The times that we feel that we just are totally inadequate, we're hopeless in what we say when we talk to people about your truths, 
We can take encouragement from the fact that you use them. You equip them. And you equip us today through your spirit. So we pray when we are in those situations where we've got opportunities to tell people about you, to show the glory of what you have done in our lives, the miracle that you've done in our lives, that we too would know and be assured of being equipped with your spirit as you promised. And your words would be spoken rather than ours. And we give you thanks for your grace, for your patience with us, and the fact that you want to see people turn to you. And that's our prayer today, that people would turn to you in this town and further afield. Amen.